everyone. Welcome to episode 187 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in a van in northern <laughs> Wisconsin. FBI I gu- surveillance van number one. I guess it's more of a sports utility vehicle. With me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, you know what I really wish? I wish I was just in that van with you, just doing the side-by-side just hanging out, recording a podcast like FBI surveillance guys do. We're just three guys in a van up <laughs> in northern Wisconsin. Welcome to Cycle 2.0 of the Dive Down. We took the money and we moved to a compound in northern Wisconsin. You knew it was I happening. Would, I would do that in a hot second. Uh, Wisconsin is underrated. I think that it's it's a it's a lovely state, largely. Milwaukee's a cool town. Got the waterfront. Got you know music venues. Got good restaurants. I mean, I would move to I would move to Milwaukee tomorrow. See you there. Please do. Well, 66.6% of all Dive Down co-hosts recommend Northern Wisconsin as your premier getaway weekend destination. Yeah, Dave's a Michigan guy, Michigander. No, I recommend it. You, you've never been to Door County. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I think maybe I have. I've been to a lot of Wisconsin, just not maybe not Door County. You'd know if you were in Door County. <laughs> it, the, air's, the air's just different up there. The sunsets, they're so beautiful. I'm, I've actually parked my car with like a direct view of the sunset. No wonder you're warm. This isn't a bit, listeners. I'm sitting in my car. There's a moonroof above me. I'm on vacation, and I just refuse to take the week off if I had decent internet connection, and it seems to be working. And I also expect that this is going to be my best-sounding episode, because I'm just in a little box. Oh, yeah. This is like people in the closets with like the, you know, the blankets over their heads, like NPR correspondence on their hotel rooms. Well, just you wait, Shane, because I just told Stan earlier when we did an audio test on his Wi-Fi connection that this is going to be my last episode from the basement for the foreseeable future. <sighs> and I think that I'm going to be podcasting from a closet from now on for a while. We're going pro. Yes. Right in our closets. The one room in my house that has an Ethernet connection other than the basement is the walk-in closet of the master bedroom. Don't ask me why, but it does. (laughs) Did I introduce Dave? I'm going to do it just in case. It's the godfather, Dave Harbarger. Hi, Dave. Hello, Dave. Just preparing, preparing my basement again. I got a dog. I got a, I got a new dog. Oh man. That's great. He's very cute. Yeah. What's his name? Marvin. Oh, Marvin the dog. Marvin the dog. Marvin the marshmallow dog. Yeah. We're ripping up our basement. We got a new dog. School's starting again. It's all happening here in, in uh, the western suburbs of Chicago, as Casa usual. Barger. Dave has a dog. I have a sangria in the car with me, because it's Wisconsin, baby. No one seems to mind. <laughs> that's a, that's their new tourist tagline, I, I heard. <laughs> no one seems to mind. It's Wisconsin, baby. No one seems to mind. <laughs> it's the dive down, baby. No one seems to mind. <laughs> All right, it's Grab Out Week on the show. Today, it's Shane's turn to regale us with stories from the battlefield of a modern regional championship qualifier. As we try to answer the question, do we have a new number one horn dog in town? To which I ask a follow-up question, which town? We're also going to talk about today's round of Dominaria spoilers that came out today. That's right today. That's why this episode isn't dropping in the middle of the night like you may be used to. Don't ask us how we knew about these spoilers. Oh, we recorded them after they became... We recorded this episode after they became public. We dropped everything that we're doing, and yeah. that we recorded this on Thursday at a certain time. That's all. That's right. Just after a certain media embargo was lifted on a handful of cards. And finally, we're also going to take a closer look at a recent article 
from our favorite magic statistician, Frank Karsten, whose new content gig, congrats by the way, is doing meta articles for the magic mothership. His latest is on Pioneer. Next up, he'll be writing about modern, but there's already a ton of interesting wisdom and insight for us to dissect. We're really excited uh, to talk about this article with you guys, our listener. We love you, but not as much as we love Frank. Before all that, though, let's housekeep. We got some new patrons this week. Shout out to Jack P and Joseph B. And this, okay, so this last one is weird. We got an increased tier from longtime patron stalwart Blue Cheese. We also got a new sub from someone known as Totally Not Blue Cheese. Not really digging into that whole situation, but credit where it's due to various forms of Blue Cheese. Thank you all for your yes. support. A Gloucester, double Gloucester, whatever. We have no new reviews this week, but if you want to get into our reviews, we appreciate that on Apple Podcasts, or you can just throw us some stars on Spotify. That goes a long way to helping people finding find us and help us feel better about ourselves, which is really what we need on a weekly basis. But if you have interest in joining our Patreon and help keeping this podcast going and help keep us... you know, It's funny, before this episode, Dave was talking about... Uh, potentially kind of revamping our website and stuff like that. And he's like, well, I'm just going to have to pay for, uh, you know, we'll just get the Squarespace thing going. That's like $30 a month. And I'm like, Dave, I'm just going to add that to our monthly ledger. And all that kind of stuff does add up and we need all the help we can get from you all. It's going to be great though. I'm telling yeah, you, it's already kind of built. So uh, there's there's a lot of fun stuff coming attached with that soon, we think. Squarespace, get at us um, for, you know, we can do a Squarespace ad. We'll be we'll be actual customers. Absolutely. We should be doing Squarespace ads for Just money. Just for free? Like no, for, no, for money. For money. <laughs> well, here's your free one, Squarespace. You know what it sounds like now. Uh, but you can head on, head on over to patreon.com slash the dive down. I know I, I met some people even this past weekend at the RCQ who were like, hey, I listened to the podcast. Oh, it's like, oh, you're Shane from the dive down. And you know what? You can you can help me more than just with your words. You can get in to that Patreon, and you more importantly, you can get involved in our active community. The Denver community is, is awesome here. I know the Chicago community is awesome, and elsewhere around the nation. Patreon.com slash the dive down. And if you'd like to support us while playing Magic Online and renting cards to play the Magic Online, you can use code the dive down 15 at manatraders.com to get 10% off of your first two months of rental cards from that excellent Manitraders rental service. That's the dive down 15 to get 10% off two months of rental cards. Manitraders.com, we couldn't do without you. You can even get a discount on paper cards from our friends over at Nerd Rage Gaming. Now, this is a unique one because we don't get any kickbacks. There's nothing in this for us. We just love Nerd Rage. They love us too, allegedly. Get 8% off your order of Paper Magic at Nerd Rage Gaming with promo code DIVE8. So the listeners who've been paying attention know I have been grinding RCQs and I'm so thrilled that this week I'm not the one who has to talk about them. How many have you done now, Stan? Three. Whoa. And you know what? I just signed up for a fourth one today. No, where? In Green Bay, Wisconsin. I'm gonna... So you did that one? On vacation. No, he's going to do it. I, I signed up. I'm playing it on Saturday. I asked how close they were to capacity, and the person told me I'm the first person to sign up. So currently locked for top eight, haven't even played a single round. This might be one of those ones where it's like you know, you're you're getting out of a, a, a huge major metro, and you're going to go like spike some 
some you know secondary no no offense to people in Green Bay, but we know it's not as large as Chicago. So you you might have might have a smaller crowd to fight through. Yeah. However, Green Bay just about to take over the all time wins count from the Chicago Bears in the NFL at this point. Uh, so you know it's a big enough city to do that kind of stuff, and I bet they have some good magic. And it, it's cooperatively owned. I understand it's it's owned by the citizens of Green Bay. So I'm all for that. You don't have to be a citizen of Green Bay, and anyone in Wisconsin can buy a share of the team. It's a truly truly socialist sporting institute love it so do you get like a case of like moon man and spotted cow when you do that they're not affiliated with each other oh well that's that's unfortunate <laughs> so yeah i guess i mean i can talk about this rcq like I, I hope this doesn't go long i don't think tournament reports are honestly like super compelling content and so what i really excuse me yeah <laughs> so shame yeah. She, oh so would you write three pages of, no. of notes on it page and a half so i think it's a total of two i think it's a total of two it's not that interesting i filled your your document with five pages of not that interesting content. I hope that's okay. Well, I mean, there's a lot of learning lessons. So that's really what I want to focus on is I think a little bit about the tournament and the tournament organizer and stuff like that. It was really, I think it was a well-run tournament, but I think that there were some things that I learned that I want to share with fellow uh, Rhino players and people playing against Rhinos and just generally, uh, you know, it's, I think it's important to take away something from a tournament and I, I did let's just before I you know just uh let's burying the lead I did go five and two in this so I felt like it was pretty good I'll take five and two yeah uh 13th out of 70 players which I'll also take but I still made some major mistakes that I noticed and probably many I didn't notice and so it was at total escape games north of Denver tournament was ran really well there were three judges, one L2 and two L1s, I think. Uh, so that was awesome. They gave us a small lunch break, which I think was worth it in the end, even though it added to the time of the tournament. The event was capped at 64, which meant six rounds, but then they kind of you know, added six more people. Maybe they had you know 35 tables or something. And so that extended to seven rounds, which was not my favorite thing in the world, but I did get to play an extra round of Magic, so that's cool. Uh, there were some citizens there, like I saw Jake, uh, who's new to the Denver area. So welcome, Jake. We have you know Cora and Spencer also showed up, although Spencer did not register in time, so he did not get added. So, but it was good to always see him. I saw a friend of the show, Max, who I know is a listener. Uh, great to talk to him between rounds, and uh, also finished top four. So great work, Max, if you're listening. I did bring rhinos. My, if you're curious about kind of the build. I had a 25th land, which was a second Boseju. I had two Endurance main. I had a Subtlety main and then a Prismari command because I did not have four Subtlety total in my collection. Uh, and so I had two Subtlety side, obviously. I think command might have been better than Subtlety in my tournament, but I only drew it like once the entire tournament anyway, and it was, but it was against Belcher. So that was fine with me. I'll take that. Uh, my sideboard then had two more subtly, two more endurance for graveyard strategies, and then the usual four force of vigor, four mystical dispute, three blood moon. Stan, before we get into the the meat of this, what do you think about this seventy five? Beautiful. So there's beautiful seventy five. I personally not convinced you even need four subtlety. I I understand yeah. why it's really good in this deck in the in the meta game, but I don't think I'm playing four in in, in my latest tests with the deck. And, um, I mean, Prismari Command has sort of proven its place in Rhinos over the last year or so, so there's nothing wrong with running that as an option. Like, I don't think you can even call that uh, 
a budget option, so to speak, just because like it does so much for the deck. Option. Yeah, like it helps um, give you blue and red pips for pitching fury and force of negation or your subtleties. Being mm-hmm. able to fix your mana with Blood Moon on the board or answer challenge. Making a treasure or, does help. Yeah, or, or just like digging for your combo sometimes. Going two to the face. Yeah, that's like, the thing. Prismari does it all. So I think your your list is totally fine. And I'm glad that you've yeah. come around to the... I, not that you required any convincing, but I'm also glad that uh, you liked the four channel lands. Because that's just something that I, I don't really come without it at this point. I mean, I had more to say about this later, but I'll just say it now. I, I am fully convinced that Tuba Seju is the truth right now. Um, and it's and it's not even against like artifact-heavy strategies. I just think there's so much utility for that tool. And and you know, it's just it's the fact that they're uncounterable is really what breaks those lands right wide open. Can you share a little bit about what got you to that position and why you're so convinced now? Um, I think there's, we'll talk about that maybe kind of in some very particular rounds where it came in really important, but I think a long story short, I'll just, uh, you know, short right now is I think that there's so little cost, you know, there's, there's, you're, you're very rarely going to draw two. And if you do, you're going to almost certainly have some kind of target in most games. So it's just like the, the cost benefit analysis is so much more on the benefit end of things that I think that it's just it's just good practice. And I think that having 25 lands largely is just really strong in this deck because I think you frequently have a lot to do with your mana, especially in post sideboard games, like in the sideboard games, like I think you often want to have extra bits of mana for things like mystical dispute or hard casting your force of vigor or flashing in a subtlety and not just having to evoke it. There's just a lot of reasons you want four or five, six lands sometimes. And I think that, you know, having 25 lands gets you there more often but um, like I mentioned, so like, you know, the I, I finished 13th. That got me 10 prize packs of new Capenna set boosters, which means I got about $13 of cards for my $40, but I'll take it. It's, I'm glad to have prizing down to 16. And what's funny is, you know, Stan, you and I were spending some time with a few citizens of the nation doing like a sideboard guide check. And I made it around the top 10 decks. And in this tournament, I played against mostly stuff that I did not plan to see. And that forced me to be a little bit more flexible and have to think a little bit more. A lot of the concepts applied to these decks, but not to all of them. Uh, and, you know, I, like I said, I think a detailed round by round is kind of boring. So I'm going to focus on kind of the things I learned in each round. So round one started off uh, a little bit scary. It was against Jeskai Lotus Field featuring Kahira. And, you know, I was on the, I was on the draw game one and I play a... I played a tap steam vents, made my opponent think I was on Murktide, and so they yes. put a chalice on one. Yes, and so that God, kind I of love opened that the game. Move. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't on purpose. Like I didn't really know what they were on, and I was just like, I don't have anything to do early. Yeah, but that's something we've never really talked about. Is that this deck can sometimes in the first turn or two can fake being Murktide by just like sh- even showing Scalding Tarn or Scalding Tarn, yeah, or, or Misty Rainforest. Murktide yep. plays both, fetching for an island or a steam vent early. Like people are just going to start preparing for ragavans. And another good reason I think to stop fetching, unless you have something to do with your mana or like you really need to conserve your life total, just hide what you're doing. Don't get that Ketria Triumph. Everyone knows, you know, most people know Ketria Triumph is almost certainly Team of Rhinos. So there's no reason you have to do that. You know, your opponent's end step, first turn type thing. Like just slow, you know, slow yourself down. 
think about how you're revealing what you're doing. Cause I think that, you know, there's, that's just a good example. And so with the chalice on one, I was able to get some pressure down, you know, got swept with a verdict, but then I was able to flash in a subtlety and then close a door type thing. I think that that's kind of one thing I really liked about subtlety kind of in a few matches is that just a four mana flash three, three flyer is fine to close some doors, especially if you're getting some tempo value with like bouncing a planeswalker or like a uh, solitude or something like that, that just comes up enough where I was pretty happy with, with subtlety the whole time. Uh, game three, here's my biggest learning lesson is on the, I was on the play game three. I was like, I brought in blood moons and I had a blood moon, in my opener. I did not have red mana in my opener. I've done this a handful of times and more often than I wanted to admit. And I honestly lost that game before it even started with my keep because I just didn't have anything actually going on. I could not play the blood moon and really it was just a poor decision that cost me the match likely. So, you know, don't, don't focus in on like a sideboard card, especially if you can't use it. Well, what did you keep? Was it like a breeding pool and an Island or something? Yeah. It was just like fetch lands that could not get me like basic forest type thing. Like it probably had like a, you know, shock and nothing that could just get me the basics I needed. And I had no red mana too. Like, so I had no ability to like fetch into red. And so it just was like, I think I, it was just a, a questionable keep altogether. Yeah. I, I, I kind of just think in those situations, you hope to draw into the thing that lets you cast blood moon or rather lets you play spells with blood moon on the board and just kind of like ignore the blood moon in your own hand if you know what i mean rather than like fetching around the blood moon too early before you can actually play magic yeah i mean i think the tricky thing here is is what shane is saying is that he had a hand that had blood moon in it because which he thought was a silver bullet against lotus lotus field right which you know i mean it could be and probably you didn't have any other action in your hand really that was good but you had your Blood Moon, you thought, okay, I'm going to lock it down with Blood Moon, and then you realized I don't have a way to get red mana because you drew... You had to... I think you had to have drawn all basics slash shocks yeah, in I, order I to no, do that. I, no fetches. I, yeah, yeah, I just I, I couldn't fetch into it and and play it, and I had nothing else really going on. And so by the time I did, you know, they were able to set up their their control sort of lock and things like that. So yeah. it just wasn't, wasn't ideal. That's the problem, is like tunnel vision on the sideboard card, getting the sideboard yeah. card. And that, that was a good learning lesson. Um, round two, I won versus Song of Creation Storm. Uh, the main thing I learned there was I think Tuba Seiju is the truth because uh, they rely on a few. They had uh, an Engineer Explosives on zero and they had Song of Creation. And so I'm just like, one turn I just hit them both. Mm-hmm. They had no hand because Song of Creation requires you to pitch your hand. And so they were just having to top deck for anything while I just you know, swung in with Rhino. So that worked just fine. Round three. I mean, of course, it's like two Bosages isn't always that useful, but it was certainly good there. Turns out they're just forests, too, though. (laughs) Yeah. Especially game Uh, one. Yeah. Round three win was unfortunately versus Korra on Amulet Titan. I don't think I made any big mistakes in the round, but this is kind of one of those things where, like, when your deck does what you want it to do and your opponents doesn't, like, you just win the match. Uh, You know, Playing a Blood Moon that Korra was forced to force a Vigor, pitching one of her packs, and then later killing a Dryad and an Amulet with a Force of Vigor. Like when uh, there's a Valakit trigger on the stack, it's just like sweet. And, you know, I think I cast all four footfalls on game two. I suspended two of them and cascaded into two more. So that's just, you know, that's how you're going to win a game that way. 
Was that your first time playing Rhinos against Titan? I think I might have. No, I played it on Magic Online before. Okay. But this is definitely like the most humming the deck has felt versus Titan for sure. Did you get the sense that I've sometimes shared that we're slightly favored in the matchup? Or do you think it was it was simply that your draws were that much better than your opponents? I th- I think that Amulet needs a better draw than you. I think you have enough like sideboard tools to put up a really good fight against what they're doing. Like, you know, bouncing an amulet, b- bouncing a Titan before combat, even with the ETB trigger, is usually pretty darn good. You, you, The Force of Vigors do a ton of work against a lot of what their tools are. I think there's just a lot of, there's a lot of ways for you to win the game, and there's fewer ways for them to do so. And so I think that you just have just a few more tools in your toolkit than they do. Uh, round four, Grinder win versus Azorius Control. I think the most interesting game there was uh, game two when I was able to... I couldn't use a Blood Moon early, but I had some threats on the board and then had to like lock their Colonnade out with the Blood Moon, even though that meant I could not cast further spells very easily just because it allowed me to finish off the game. It's just one of those things where it's like I... I found sort of the way that I had to win the game. And that's kind of one of the things I think you get to do sometimes in scrappy matches. It's just like, you know, what gets me to the point where I get that last three points of damage in. And I think Blood Moon was useful against Azorius Control. I think it's one of the things, like, that's another matchup I did not expect to see. Yeah, I'm surprised that you brought in Moons against that, just because they. I would assume they would have fetched for so many basic islands and so many basic planes. Are they, did they, were they tricky with the mana? Like Storm Giants and colonnades and all kinds of stuff or yeah i mean they just i just saw a lot of you know dual type lands on game two i did not have it in on game two because i was on the draw i think and so i brought it in on the play just hoping to kind of cheese a win or like cheese enough of a win to cheese enough of some time to to get there and so i just wanted to i thought it was worth bringing in versus what they were doing they weren't they i didn't see a lot of basics early on and i didn't see them playing in a way that was playing around it Mm -hmm. so i mean that's the big thing right is if they're not super experienced against rhinos or they think oh this person's not going to bother sometimes you can still catch people you know with moon even when you shouldn't bring it in yeah i think it's it's just it's good enough i think it's like uh I think it's slightly underrated right now, honestly, Blood Moon. I think there's like so many matches when I think that it's going to do a lot of work for you. It's really, in in some games, I think, in some matchups, I think largely Blood Moon, or some, excuse me, some strategies, I think Blood Moon can be potentially overrated. But I think in Rhinos that it fits into what we're doing in a lot of ways because like you can take, there's certain turns I think you can take off and then catch up so aggressively with rhinos or like then on turn four you can try to cascade and keep up like a mystical dispute or some kind of some kind of random protection that would protect even against something that could possibly do under a blood moon so i think there's just a lot of there's a lot of good things there i even think the threat of blood moon is sometimes as effective in making people fetch in optimally where if say turn game two you're on the play you cheese them out with a blood moon Game three, if you're on the draw and you fetch as if you have blood moons that that you don't, opponent might just be scared enough that they're like aggressively getting basics and then preventing themselves from playing as well as they could or casting all their spells yeah, in, exactly. in the right sequence. 
it's it's a, it's like small advantages, right? It's either it can be small advantages or just like a huge lockout, and and both of those things are like good options. And it pitches to Fury if you you know if you need to. Uh, round five was a loss against uh, Denver Modern Grinder uh, David, who I think writes for Modern Nexus. He does the Nexus metagame analysis articles. He's uh, very good. He was on Burn. If I didn't mention uh, game two, he cast a silence against me. When I cascaded, uh, that was just a tilt. Uh, and he had a, a really incredible clock game two on the play. And then game three, this is, this is, I think, maybe the most learning lesson of the entire tournament. And I want to run this by you, Stan and Dave, uh, and listeners, of course, is I made a really big error trying to conserve my life total, which then made me use my mana inefficiently while I was on the play game three. And so the the very the thing that I did is I did not fetch shock and cast dead on a swift spear turn like their swift spear turn my end of turn turn one. I allowed it to connect and then I fetched for a tap shock and then I fired it on my turn two. Question okay. question right yeah. there. The second mana to cast the fire, was that just like a basic in your hand? I think or- I, I think I fetched a basic mountain. Okay, so now you're at three damage total, right? Because you shocked twice and took one from the from the Swiss spear. No, I just fetched into a tap shock, and then so I took so That's basically one. I took yeah, so I took two. Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So, but I took a huge tempo loss here, right? And so what that allowed then is my opponent then to untap, cast a roiling vortex on their turn two, which then I sort of had to untap. I don't know if I drew into a Boseju or if I had it. So then on my turn three, I Bosejued it instead of cascading. And then then I just was sort of behind on tempo the whole time, allowed him to just burn me out, right? So there was potentially an argument for one, maybe just eating the five damage and cascade on turn three. But really, I think what it was is that you have to pressure burn because every extra turn you're giving them is effectively three to four damage, right? Because like, it's either a, a, a burn spell or like a Boros, or a Boros charm or a creature that might do two damage to you just from killing it or something like that. And so really I think that ne- didn't necessarily lose me the game, but I was playing, I was playing not to lose rather than playing the only way I think rhinos beats burn is by cascading on turn three. So I'm not an experienced pilot here, but I'll say just from, you know, not experienced as you guys are with rhinos, I will say going off curve with your mana like that against burn is probably was def- I think was a mistake for sure. Just because you got to get value out of your first turn. If you can, even if you fetch shock to do it, I do think that this is kind of like two mistakes. You know what I mean? Cause I probably at that point when you're like, okay, I didn't take the three, in order to try to play conservatively, but then they hammer me with, with rolling vortex, you know, I think that what else were you saving the life total for other than to spend it in a way like that? You know what I mean? So to also not cascade, I think there is like the, such a, like you said, it's a huge tempo hit. I probably would have, you're kind of, I feel like you're kind of priced into cascading in that situation when you have it, then you untap and you have Boseju up where it's like, okay, if I got to get rid of Roiling Vortex now, I can, or maybe I'll have a different thing I can do that Roiling Vortex doesn't hurt me for anymore. But I, I think it, I think both of those things were probably mistakes, I think. 
But Stan, do you feel like not true or do you have to be more careful with your life total against burn for some reason you think or it's so hard to be careful with your life total against burn because your lands do so much damage to you and it's a tough matchup to the point that I will never fault someone for playing the four ley lines of sanctity to pad the the game in your favor somewhat. I also think that burn is one of those matchups, perhaps the only matchup in the format where you have so little chance of winning if you don't cascade on three. Um, and those games, those matches go really quick either way for that reason, where it's like, if you've cascaded on three, you're going to close the game out or they're going to burn you out because you haven't. Part of me wonders whether the mistake there was actually just like trying to tag the Swift Spear rather than like letting it connect another time. Because at most it's only doing like, what, one to two damage to you, basically. And if you knew you were going could cascade on three, your Rhinos will just always outclass the Swift Spear. Or they have to like go down on cards to answer a Rhino with a Swift Spear as well. And I think that may have been like a position where you could have beaten them on the board with better creatures and kept up cards, whether it's Besaju, Fire Ice, whatever else, to have some flexibility against whatever else they do. Yeah, real quick, building on what Stan says, I think that part of it is not just using fire to get the Swift Spear. I think that doing it... Did you main phase fire? Yeah, because I was afraid of them having two untapping and having two burn spells. Right, which I think totally makes sense, but the the hard thing is just like... It's tough. Yeah, it's tough. Because I, I was thinking, well, you, you should at least try to, if you're gonna kill it, you should at least try to get some value out of making them go in on burn spells instead of doing something else, like playing a creature and getting the damage off of it. Yeah. But if all you have is damage that does two, two you know, that does two uh, damage, like spells that do two damage, then you can't really stop them if they have double instance. So I think, I think the real, I mean, we're getting in the weeds on this one, but I think the real play was... The, the real bad play was just kind of assuming that they would not be going for something like ro- rolling vortex, assuming that they would play it on turn two rather than kind of going to go burn spell, burn spell, because then I could make a decision in their, you know, like pre-combat main phase rather than do it on my main. Because like, like Stan said, like, I think it's, it's probably stronger to like not live in fear of the damage off the swift spear. And just sort of give me a decision to, okay, if he plays Rolling Vortex, then I eat two damage off the Swiss Spear, and then I besage you the Rolling Vortex on my turn two, rather than main phase the yeah. fire, which just like seems the weakest choice all around. Yeah. I kind of think like all three of those plays were could have been better, right? Yeah. It's like you did that, you did one thing, and then you tried to fix it by doing a different thing, and then it didn't go great. And then it was kind of like, oh, well, then the third thing I, d- I didn't shove all the way in on the third play that I had a chance to do. So, yeah. yeah. But it really all cascaded from just the first turn decision, right? right. Of just but, not But you were eating. probably right there. Like, so I actually think your first turn decision was, was probably correct, assuming you couldn't have fetched for a basic mountain to dead on, on site. Because one of the ways you lose against burn is fetch shocking. Kind of like, uh, unless you have actual life gain spells, which we really don't. Yeah. That that's why I think your mistake wasn't on turn one necessarily. I also had just come from a game two where he literally just killed me so quickly with two swift spears and a bunch of burn spells, and so yeah, I was kind huh. of just like I was just a little gun shy from that, and I was like, oh man, more more swift spears, I can't have this. I think you got to get value out of dead 
when you have it in your hand though is, what, so is what, what my my mindset is there is like dead doesn't go to face you know fire goes to face you can tap something with ice as well and so i feel like if you have i mean that's what dead is in the deck for it's to kill ragavan right but it's also to kill swift spear or deck <laughs> cards like that right so you kind of are committed to use it for that i think in that moment yeah i i just misjudged like the tempo cost i think yeah. that that would that that had on me yeah and so yeah that was that was the cascading issue related to that so that was a that was a good learning lesson and that's why i think it's 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 enough that we talked about it for like 10 minutes so yeah but it's a reminder use your mana people yeah like, use it, your mana. using that's your mana is important <laughs> yeah for Weird. once in your life use your mana yeah uh round six win versus hammer my opponent didn't respect my bounce spells he tried to jam too hard with me playing the control and we had a good discussion afterwards about what we were both like trying to do in the matchup. And I think reminded me what my role is there. And I think um, hopefully was was helpful for my opponent. He was a really uh, nice person. Uh, round seven win was versus Belcher. I, I noticed, here's my learning lesson here, is I did not use ice well in this matchup. I, I just kind of neglected to like tap down their lands and their upkeep properly to like keep them off of their spells. I really only won this match because game two, uh, he had stacked his deck with the recross the paths or whatever, and then had basically had a he packed something and then untapped and then didn't use the metamorphose that he had in hand to make double blue. He made like red blue to pay for his pack trigger. He thought it only needed single blue. Importantly, he had two friends watching, so they'll be able to make fun of him forever and ever. He was a really good sport about it. We had a we had a we had a fun matchup. Uh, game three had a gemstone on the draw and a Prismari command in hand, so I was just sort of able to keep him off of Char Belcher. And then I had sideboard cards like Mystical Dispute and Force of Vigor, and I just I just got there with that one. So, you know, just it's one of those things where it's like don't make decisions quickly. We weren't to time. You know, he just was like, I'm gonna make red blue. And it was like, oh, there's no reason for you to make red blue there. And so we both learned something for sure. Anyway, I didn't play against four color. It doesn't seem popular at our event. Uh Merc Tide I didn't play against. It didn't seem super prevalent either. Our top eight was a wild one. There was two burn, two glimpse cascade combo decks, a Merc Tide, a Yogmoth, a Tron, and a Hammer. Um, I'm not sure what ended up winning in the end, so my apologies there because I did not stay till 9.30 p.m. And any changes I'd make. Like, I think the main deck endurances weren't, like, a thing I cared about at all. I had two main deck, but I also didn't play against any graveyard decks. So, like, what this really... I think, Stan, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like the four or five flex cards in Hammer are to give us that complete 75 package that we've talked about in previous episodes where, like, you do not have the perfect 60 just in, you know, against the field, you have some predictions that you're going to make where it's like, I'm going to have a subtlety main because I don't want to get eaten alive by other elementals or by Teferi three or by, you know, whatever random creature you want to put back on their top of their deck. And I have some endurances because I'm going to plan to see some Merc Tide, maybe some living end or something like that. And they're generally cheap enough to cast on three where I'm going to get some kind of value out of it. But like other times you might be like, I want more bone crusher because I want some, there's a ton of small creature decks or something like that. And so like, that's kind of how I felt I had to think about my deck right now. 
I think that the perfect 60 doesn't exist for any deck except seemingly like Burn and Murktide, which doesn't change week to week at all. But that that is an interesting thing to think about in general. Like, what is, what is the perfect 60 for Rhinos? What what does it look like? And maybe the part of the power in Rhinos in a three-color deck that can rely on pitch elementals is that it can fluctuate week to week. And it's not rather that like that's an issue with the deck, but rather a potential benefit to it um, that, that you can continue to rebuild and iterate. I, the the one thing I, I kind of just want to leave you with, in addition to my joy in hearing how much you love this deck and, and that you clearly are getting better with it, like X2 for 13th place in cash, in quotes, is an excellent record for, I believe, your first time playing this deck in paper. So Yeah, first in paper, yeah. Tip in my hat. You, you, you've, you put the work in and, and you earned that. I, I kind of just feel like you're at this point now where you can start experimenting with more unusual or exploratory technology not saying that you need to play the exact cards that i mess around with but like i'm playing with clothis in the sideboard right now just to see like if it can help solve problems because we have so many cards available to us in modern in teamer colors that do just like crazy stuff at three mana especially where it's just like you know, we've noticed that there hasn't been a ton of rhinos in competitive modern online events lately. And I think part of that is maybe that uh, Murktide is a tough matchup, but also like the deck needs to continue evolving. And that's not going to happen until people like put more effort into trying new stuff, main and side. The split between sideboard cards that maybe belong in the main or the addition of cards that were never particularly popular but could be as the format evolves as well no i hear you on that and one of the things that i'm actually my i don't know about fury stan like i'm meaning i don't know if i'm a i don't know about a play set of fury mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. now like in the current metagame it's like one of the things like if you look on most sideboard sheets are like you can remove fury because it's your worst you know it's blah 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 it's like well what's fury actually doing for me like I, in my main like i think i could consider even shaving the two main deck and having like three, like maybe a third in my sideboard somehow, like I feel like I want to test Fable of the Mirror Breaker a bit just to see how it plays. I feel like I could test Archmage's Charm just because like that's sort of like a high utility main deck card. You know what I mean? Like, and just make a little bit more room for some cards like that by taking out things that I felt like were pretty low impact, like a Fury. Yeah. It's. Just, I've never thought that about Fury. I have wondered that about even like Brazen Borrower. Like, do I want for Brazen Borrower? Yes. I, I, and and I, the answer I usually come to is yes, I do. I, you know, the thing about Fury specifically is that it makes your good matchups almost unlosable if you draw it, and it's like it's yeah. so important in that role where it just like it helps ensure you win the games you're supposed to, and it's actually a good answer on, against like one of your biggest problem cards, which is Teferi Time Reveler. So, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Like, if you if we can find other answers to those problems, then there are no sacred cows except like the twelve card cascade package and maybe fire ice and force negation. Yeah. So, I mean, long story short, I think I, I mean I really like playing the deck. I think it's like just such a great balance between interaction and tempo and the decision making required and the times you have to make those decisions and being like somewhat more challenging to hate out than. Uh, a cascade deck like living end and i think yeah i think it's a great deck i think you can get a lot out of it and again i will stick with my recommendation from a couple weeks ago but thanks for giving me all this time here i mean this is not me tooting my own horn five and two you know 13th place is not amazing but i think there's just a lot to learn and think about when you're playing you know seven matches in a day 
I'll say five and two for 13th place is an amazing record for a casual spike. Yeah, absolutely. I, you should feel great about that. Stan, before we get out of this segment. Yes. So you you got one more RCQ in you at least, and mm-hmm. you're up north. You're yes. probably only carrying one deck with you. That's right. So you're still on Rhinos, right? I am. Yep. So both of you have noted it's not particularly showing up in a lot of the RCQ results that we're seeing. No, it hasn't been. It hasn't been in a weekend challenge for like a month. What do you all think about that particular thing before we get out of here? It's winning RCQs though. Like if you if you pay attention to the Rhino Discord or just like the annals of Twitter, people are still doing well with the deck. I try paper. to stay out of that part of Twitter, buddy. <laughs> yes, we all should. But it, it's still perfectly fine in paper. It's it's really the online results that have become seemingly hostile to it. Um, but to answer your question, I I just think Merktide is is a big problem. Merktide and, and and four color decks like the rhino player has to be lucky and the opponents have to be unlucky in those matchups which is not necessarily a bad position to be in if you have so many other good matchups in the format and i think that the metagame can can definitely swing but i I mean like maybe people just aren't interested maybe it's it's better than they give it credit for i'll be curious to see what frank karsten's article next week says about it you mean today I think it comes out today. Oh, on Thursday? Like, on Thursday. Thursday I think it comes out today is the day it's released. We just right. had a chance to process it before we do yeah. this show. Yeah. But, but yes. But but to your point, I mean, like, this is the ebb and flow. There, there were periods when Rhinos subsided significantly and then out of nowhere started winning challenges again. And we've, and we've seen that ebb and flow with Rhinos, with Living Hand, with Merktide even, like, in the post-MH2 format. So I'm not necessarily discouraged by it, especially because, like, we keep proving to ourselves and seeing confirmation elsewhere that like the deck can win. It's just like, that's one sample that isn't particularly encouraging to it. Yeah. All right. Well, number one horn dog cast out for the night. Uh, we spent a bit more on that than I think we thought we were going to, but that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. Let's, uh, let's get on to the next part of the grab bag. Stan, would you like to take us through part of, part of this story that we have yes it's dominaria spoilers time here's why we know about the cards it's because i got to write another story for polygon.com about dominaria spoilers so i i got some insights in advance and excited to talk about them on today's show as well because there's some really cool cards that are really familiar to us and including some new ones that we've never seen before in this latest release of spoilers from dominaria united a couple interesting things to note here is that the set was inspired by invasion and and to some extent maybe all of invasion block but really the set invasion um that was one of the first sets to have gold cards one of the so invasion big era of like classic what's now called i guess pre-modern magic you know it's in between the reserve list stuff it's before the modern era of magic ipa is one of the uh, most beloved um, beloved draft formats of all time. It's one of the first sets that had a lot of three color gold cards in my in my memory. It's also the set that introduced domain as a mechanic and kicker as a mechanic. And so both of those things will be coming soon. Stan will talk about those again in a minute. But um, also they uh, they first introduced split cards in in the set. So invasion is kind of an era defining uh, set for magic and also was a big part of the phyrexian arc at the time and guess what 
kind of what this set is about, too. It's the Phyrexians returning to Dominaria. And what Stan was mentioning is that this is one of the first sets, Invasion was one of the first sets to come back to a lot of gold cards after a break of a couple years from Stronghold to Invasion Block, which means that they kind of, they didn't have gold cards in like Mercadian Masks and stuff like that, basically. I don't know if you guys knew this about me, but Invasion was when I first learned to play Magic as a tween, junior high, early high school person. Oh, interesting. Would you say it invaded your mind? Hearts and minds were invaded. Invasion was one of my exit ramps. It was towards the end of when I stopped playing the first time, I will say. I do remember, uh, of course, when Urza's Rage, which is a card that is now an uncommon and I believe was in Dominaria a couple of years ago, but it's been reprinted in the last couple of years, shifted to an uncommon. It was a $50 rare. I've talked about this many times, but it was a $50 rare in like 2002. So, uh, yeah. I don't know what that is. Five thousand dollars in today's in today's dollars, maybe. But so we did get to see some of the new mechanics and returning mechanics. Kicker is back. I feel like Kicker is just evergreen on sets that take place How in Dominaria. area. What is what is Kicker? Kicker is this new. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, for, for those who aren't familiar with Kicker. Your cards <laughs> have a mana cost, and in addition to that, you can pay a Kicker cost to add something else to the card's effect. One thing that's notable that I've noticed in the cards that we've seen so far, and indeed the card that they spoiled, one of the cards that they spoiled a few weeks ago even, is the uh, the like Wrath that you can protect some of your permanents by kicking it. Mm-hmm. There's like a, sh- a wedge theme to it, where the main card, for example, is red, and then the kicker cost will be white and blue, as opposed to being allied colors. Um, even one of the cards that was spoiled during, during this whole dump uh, is a card that's a white card that has a black kicker cost and i think that stuff's always kind of interesting and that sort of stuff is pretty on theme for invasion apocalypse apocalypse was very into wedges invasion had uh shards kind of another returning mechanic is domain which was an original invasion and this basically counts the number of basic lands you control and basic land types right yes yes basic land types and impacts a card based on that number And then some of the new mechanics are Read Ahead, which is a saga mechanic. And this allows you to skip early chapters of sagas and go straight to later ones. And then the skip chapters don't trigger at all. And as usual, the saga is sacrificed once you pass chapter three or whatever the final chapter is on it. This is interesting to me when I saw this, because like I was like, part of the design space of a saga is the pacing of what's happening, how the first, second, third chapters interact with one another in different ways. Like, you know, there are some that are more control oriented. There's some that are more aggression oriented. Some, sometimes the time is built into the card itself as part of the cost, right? Where it's like, you're not going to get this effect until like three turns later or two turns later or something like that, right? Like maybe getting a permanent back out of a graveyard under your control or to like do some kind of mass removal, just something, right? Like we, I don't remember every saga that's out there, but some of them have like third chapters that are worth waiting for, right? And so by allowing the read ahead mechanic to exist, I think that Wasi potentially has to be a little bit more careful with how they design these because that that third chapter can't be too bonkers for the cost because, or unless the first and second chapters are just like, so uh, not useful that you might 
just always want to skip them or they're really not that valuable. So I'm curious what's going to happen with these. I also think one of the ways we can potentially interpret and evaluate these cards, moving these read-ahead cards moving forward is as quasi-split cards where they're modal depending on which mode you care most about or which chapter in this case. You can focus in on specific effects and ignore others. And I think... Depending on how they design them, we might see some of these break through into our favorite formats just because there will be such a powerful chapter that the other ones can more or less be ignored unless you need to generate value in some way and and have the time to do that. So I I had tabbed one of the cards that was spoiled today as something we should could talk about as far as read ahead goes. I think one of these cards is potentially playable. Uh, so let's just talk about it so we can see how these designs are are being done. And we, we won't have to talk about it later then. The card's called cool. the World Saga. It costs five colorless GG. The World and, Spell, right? The world oh, the spell. World Spell. Sorry, the World Even Spell. Even though it is a saga. Five colorless GG. It's a saga, exactly. It's a mythic, uh, and it has read ahead. And chapters one and two say, look at the top seven cards of your library. You may reveal a non-saga permanent card from among them and put it into your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. And then chapter three is put up to two non-saga permanent cards from your hand onto the battlefield. So I looked at this card and I thought a little bit, number one, I think this talks a lot about what you're pointing out about this mechanic, Shane, is that it's more like I think a lot of these and the two that we've seen so far do the same pattern where you can skip to chapter three if you want to, but if you have the time and you want some extra value, you can go through chapters one and two. That's that's what the way that these cards seem to work to me. And I wouldn't be surprised if almost all of these sagas that have read ahead are basically like a, an expensive thing that you can, can be really powerful if you just want to go to chapter three. But if you have the time, get this extra value. And that's what this card does. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this card is because the place that I think this card could potentially, potentially be playable is in Mono Green Devotion in uh, Pioneer because I felt like it has a chance to not only be sort of like an extra version of Storm the Festival, where you can go and get some cards and put them to play, but also it lets you kind of search for some gas if you don't have, um, don't have, any cards in hand and have time to go to trigger the first couple of chapters. So it's really expensive, but you know, that's kind of what mono green devotions thing is. It's being able to cast really expensive spells, but it would let you do something wild, like put, you know, put an Ugin and a Karn into play from your hand or do something, do something like that, you know, get a Kiora and a Karn and get them into play. Um, so I, it just seemed like maybe there's a chance that this card could happen. Could. I think it's like, it's a, Stallbreaker, right? It's definitely like I think something where you might want it in a sideboard game. And I think it's the kind of thing where it's like either against a super removal heavy or a the mirror, for instance, right? Like this is gonna like break a mirror wide open. I think interestingly, I think it's one of the things that can help you do your cauldron combo more reliably. Like digging 14 cards deep for like redundant planeswalkers, which I I think are essentially required to kind of have like the loop work the way it does. And so I think that that's something that I think this could more likely increase consistency in kind of a sideboard game where it's like, I'm like 14 cards is so deep. If you want to do a 
step one and step, excuse me, chapter one and chapter two. Or if you, like you, you know, you've mentioned is if you have a grip full of cards and just want to like break parity, you can just slam them onto the battlefield as soon as possible, which I think could also just do a ton of work. Right. So yeah, I think that this is something that it costs a lot, but it, it just seven cards is so much and 14 cards is even more. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. And I feel like maybe it's a one of or a two of in that deck where like the other cards are already better. If you want some extra effects to be able to dig and cheat cards, this could maybe be your thing. I think it's clearly worse than Storm of the Festival personally, but maybe you want a fifth one, maybe you want a sixth one. Anyway, so that was one of the first cards we had to talk about, but I think it's illustrative of the design challenges that Shane was talking about for the mechanic that we had. Okay. And then the last mechanic that they premiered here... Stan is a combat-y one. Uh, it's called Enlist. It says, tap a non-attacking creature you control without summoning sickness. When you do, add its power to this creature until end of turn. It's a little bit like a mechanic called Cohort that was in Oath of the Gatewatch, the uh, kind of somewhat reviled set. Uh, it, was, it was an important ally-based mechanic in the uh, the draft environment. But, um, you know, I we'll see if there's ever a possibility of a constructed card making sense with this type of thing my guess would be not likely but we'll see we'll see what effects they yeah. they add on top of this kind of like add power thing as well all right we we have talked so much about mechanics and we have such huge reprints to talk about well so this was probably the biggest surprise when you were getting the debriefing about this stuff i'm sure stan is there's a couple of huge reprints in here and why don't we start with the biggest one tell us about it her name is Liliana of the Veil. Oh, remember her? Yeah. She, she costs three mana. mana, Three mana. <laughs> three uh, mana. I'm not going to read the card. Our listeners know what Liliana of the Veil does, but now yeah. they get to experience her in Pioneer and, and ostensibly explore and potentially standard again, if, if that's your jam. She's one of those yeah. cards that I can like, I know by heart for like no good reason. It's probably one of the first expensive cars that you bought when you got into modern, though. Shane. Quite like, well, my Tarmogoyfs were definitely the big expenditure. Like, I think I paid like five hundred dollars for a place at a future site Goyfs or something like that. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I remember. Whew. Yeah, wow. And I was like, they're not going to go down. They're future site Goyfs. They're not just those reprint Goyfs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This one was surprising, I think, but also sort of not surprising i you know people who've been playing magic for a while will probably remember that there was a lot of talk around m14 m15 that the design team tried to put liliana into the core sets uh those years and decided that because thought was in standard from theros that they did not want to have standard format that had thought and liliana in it um, a lot, some of that maybe had to do with people clamoring for reprints because of modern, but I think they also just think it's a card that's iconic and isn't so broken that it can, can't be in standard ever, ever again, you know, and it's not a complicated card like the, what it does. I mean, it's ultimate is sort of complicated, especially online, but the, uh, you know, the plus and the minus are really clear. It's iconic as far as like a value engine goes, I, this doesn't mean anything for modern, of course, because we already had it, and Liliana doesn't get a ton of play in modern anymore. It's in a couple decks, but still a seventy dollars card, and I think that's yeah. one of the modern implications is that we're gonna be able to buy her for like, I mean, not an MTG finance pod, but like, I would not be surprised to see her drop down to maybe forty, if not even thirty bucks, because there's going to be a ton of this product in general, 
and there's going to be multiple printings and multiple frames. And those are the sort of things that kind of contribute to cards on a big discount. So I think if and when Lily becomes more relevant and modern, she's just going to be easier to pick up than ever, almost like Goyf is right now. So there's one wrinkle to that thing that isn't always borne out in Magic Finance. And that is if she is a locked in four of in the tier one deck in standard, there is a chance that that price will not go down until after standard rotation. And then it'll kind of all come out in the wash. This has happened in the past a little bit with different cards in particular, with cards we'll be talking about in a minute, which is Painlands. Liliana has a chance to, when it, when she was in standard the last time, I think she was a $70 card, I believe. Yeah, like the, though, the mono black like uh, devotion style decks. She was not in that deck because Theros was later than Innistrad. Um, but I, I'm trying to remember what if there was a deck that was really, really key and standard at that point in time, or if it was really just on modern demand. But at any rate, that that's the one scenario that might make the price not go down and might actually make it stable or potentially even make it go up from where it is, yeah. depending on how, how big interest in standard is. But there is no interest in paper standard. That That's true. Yeah. That's the is, thing is, that we have to wait thing. and see. You yeah. know what I mean? Like standard yeah. is, is largely an arena format right now that I think... People are going to be cracking packs, and I just see tons of Lily flooding the market, and, which is a good thing. But can we talk about, I mean, let's let's breeze through Modern. She's not that important anymore. She's like a staple in like 2.5 decks, right? Like nothing that's ridiculously popular. There's like a Rakdos mid-range deck that she's like, that, that's occasionally showing up. She's not in the scam deck. Uh, She's in Jund, in Jund yeah. Saga since Luris is gone, which is a good a thing that I hadn't quite realized until I saw Stan's yeah. note here that I forgot that that's there. But um, she's, you know, yeah. she's an eight rack. Yeah, she's in like some eight the rack mono and black stuff. coffers stuff, which nothing ridiculously popular. She's not in like the top 50 spells of modern right now. Her price is still holding, which does blow my mind. Like she went up after Luris got banned and she sort of actually held her price surprisingly well. So. You know, people just love lilies. And, you know, there's always like three or four of her, which is really important. And that's, I think, where we want to talk about the actual impact she's going to have, which is Pioneer. Yeah. Because Lily will now be new to Pioneer. I think it's funny that Lily is likely a more Pioneer level card right now and potentially a pretty high power level for Pioneer. And Pioneer is a battlefield format. And ostensibly the most popular deck in pioneer depending yes. on what metrics you use is rakdos mid-range that's the real which seems thing. like the type of deck that she would slot directly into you know i was taking a look at the list i'm not sure exactly which card you would cut for it i certainly have some thoughts uh, as someone who's played the deck um oh, but i'm not like an expert with it but it seems it seems like you would want to have it in that deck it does so many different things yeah i mean it's i think that it would feel a lot like old gen style decks of modern right like it's that's where we are with a, a Rakdos mid-range style deck in pioneer is you're effectively doing the exact same thing you're doing which is you know well-statted creatures that could do some two-for-ones and removal spells and a planeswalker that is helping you do those same things right and just you know making your opponent never able to play anything down to the battlefield again whether or not you have removal yeah i mean can you imagine like i sort of can't imagine ever playing Soren the mirthless in this deck ever again. Not a chance. No. Like, I mean, if I'm going to do that, I'd just rather have Liliana, I think. If I 
if I, you know, a full play set of Blood Tithe Har- Harvester, like, is that card that important to me at, at this point that I wouldn't rather just have Liliana, even though it's a three drop instead of a two drop, you know, curve considerations, um, does it edge out some number of copies of Bone Crusher Giant? Like, I don't, I don't know, but there's, there's, a, there's cards in that deck that just feel to me like, yeah, we could push it out. Yeah, there's some room. And, you know, I think it's just like, so there's so many little incidental things, like she's going to feed your graveyard for Kroxa, right? I mean, that's like something that's kind of challenging in Pioneer. And Kroxa is a, you know, it's a huge threat once you actually get it back out. So it's just, you know, it just makes, I think, a very good deck even better. And this is where I think the price pressure will be on Liliana, because this is right before the Pioneer, like, you know, events that will be happening. We'll have more seasons of RCQs. We'll have the Pioneer Pro Tour that I think a lot of people still don't have cards for. And so that makes sense. Yeah, I completely forgot about the fact that there's probably people who play Pioneer that don't have play sets of Liliana's. They aren't all recovering, not recovering. They aren't all stalwart modern players like we are. <laughs> I mean, I don't have a place at Liliana. You know what I mean? Like, I do. I, I I sold her probably twice or something like that. I don't know. Maybe just once. Yeah, I have two that I'm always like, why do I have this card <laughs> from my skill and mental days? So I'm I just want to go on record. I think this is a really big get for for Pioneer for a, a number of reasons. Shane, your point about Croaks is super interesting, made me realize that not only does it feed the graveyard for Croaks, but it just also like pitches dead cards that you have in hand if your opponent is maybe like attacking your graveyard or uh, I don't know like you brought in a sideboard piece that becomes irrelevant or it's game one and you have some like a removal spell against control and your fatal push is just rotting in your hand and just like ditch to Lily and you got a stew going like you know there's the recursion to black black like get it back out of your graveyard person the tenacious underdog like there's just you know there's i think there's more stuff that could happen again like maybe this is like a get for even mono black aggro probably not but like there's decks that could take advantage of the yard in different ways that is easier to do in pioneer simply because of the speed of the format yeah and like you said pioneer is so much more about the battlefield the idea of attacking your hand or attacking your creatures is something that's a little out, outdated in a way in modern sense when it's so much modern so much more about mana efficiency power for you know divided by zero mana cost kind of stuff that you know this card is just a little too slow there now i also barring other cards in dominaria that we just don't know about yet i think what's interesting about her in pioneer versus modern is that you basically can't kill her for one mana especially if she ticks up so I guess like I think strangle hits planeswalkers if I'm remembering correctly. Like if she ticks down, you can strangle her. You're still getting two for one because she made you edict a creature. But you're either going to end up spending more than three mana to answer her a lot of times, or you're going to have to point a bunch of cards at her or a card and an attacking creature. And I just see her being this very sticky threat that's going to become a lot of problems for games and is maybe even going to define you know, a lot of Rakdos or or wherever she ends up board states, because if you don't actually answer her as quickly as possible, she's going to keep you from ever being able to like keep cards in hand and eventually just live off the top of your library. And in some cases, I think these, especially the current Rakdos deck, the top deck game is just so powerful since you're always threatening to the top deck, a planes, another planeswalker or a really potent creature that has evasion or a Kroxa that's just going to like completely swing the game that 
I think she's just going to maybe even make the best deck better. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to the other the other thing that we alluded to, which is the other reprint in here is the Painlands, both allied and enemy. There's only six in this set. There's three allied, three enemy. The ones that are in this set that are not in Pioneer right now, which is what really matters, is I didn't even write down what their names are. Sulfurous Springs, uh, Articar Wastes, and Carpulzen Forest. Is that what they are, the three? So it's Black Red, Blue White, and Red Green are the three pain lands that are here that did not we did not have access to before. People have been begging for these lands to get printed into Pioneer ever since the format yes. was incepted. Now The Ally one specifically. Because yes, we had the yeah. enemy. Yeah, we're not talking about the enemy ones at all. We got we got them. They were in Origins. They've been they've been all over the place. Um, the allied ones. I, you know, the big thing here is that, if case you don't know, there's a huge disparity between mana building in Pioneer between enemy color pairs and allied color pairs, and that is mostly because of the Kaladesh fast lands. That's the Spire Bluff Canal cycle that makes it a lot easier for decks that want to be kind of aggro and be and that are enemy color based to be able to have an untapped duel on turn one right the only way that you can do that in allied pairs right now really reliably in an aggro deck is it from cards that are played is a shock that's really it those are the only ones that are played all the other cards that are being played that are dual lands right now do not come in untapped on turn one is that right I mean, you can play those reveal lands, but we've That's tried and decided of, why we shouldn't ever put those in our deck. Exactly. So it's interesting. You know, none of the pain lands that are in Pioneer right now are in the top 50 lands in Which Pioneer. Is, so wild. Shivan, so Shivan Reef so isn't played. Yeah, Shivan Reef isn't played. Lanawar Waste isn't played. Like, those cards are not played at all. But, the, but, but. That's because there are fast lands. There, there's a Correct. better version of those, right? That, that yes. and that's that's the point, right? Is that yes. they're they're pretty clear a, a swap. You know, I also think that we're in a different era than we were when Pioneer started for a couple other reasons too, Shane. Well, I mean, I think it's also important to say that the the pathways largely replaced the pain lands, even for more aggressive decks like um, Is It Phoenix, for example, used to yes. play like Shivan Reef, and now just plays the, the pathway along with the fast lands. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the other big thing that I think is people maybe forget about a little bit is that most of the decks that might have been experimenting with that have swapped over to Fastlands to uh, Pathways instead. And so we've had that happen. We've had the other the other cards that have come that are actually better than they looked or actually pretty good as well as what I just think of as the Innistrad slow duels, the ones where you have to have more two or more lands to have them come in untapped. Those cards are good. And the allied decks that I think would play pain lands or would even play the fast lands, they all have four of those Innistrad slow duels. I don't even know what those cards are called, you know, as a cycle. But if you look at blue-white control, if you look at red-black aggro, those are all running those Innistrad duels. And that's part of the reason that, the uh, you know, unfortunately, like I bought the black-red duel and it's like $17 or $17 a pop. Like it's, they're expensive. Yeah. yeah the- so... I mean, the real weird thing is like you were getting at Dave is like, it's a different era of pioneer where there's like, there's just not, I, mean, I don't know if it's because of the mana or because of the strategies is like, we're not seeing aggressive gruel decks. We're not seeing like a, a aggressive, it's like really aggressive. Well, like red black decks and things like that. So it's just, we're, we're in a weird time when, 
you know, is it a cart? Is it a chicken or the egg type thing, right? Where you know, maybe these lands help because, like Stan mentioned, we don't even have the fast lands in those colors, right? So, like the the balance has so been skewed towards uh, enemy colors that now there's this influx, potentially like the per, perhaps the worst influx of pain land into the ally colors, but at least it's something. So I, you know. I, I think these are going to be played. I think, for example, red, black, mid range. I could see it picking up one to two sulfurous springs, so that you have untapped, you know, two more untapped duels on turn one. You didn't have that before. Now you can have it. It's a little painful when you do, but like the blue white one, it's not going to get played in blue white control. There's no reason to play a pain land in, in control, and that that's another thing that we we could talk about a little bit is that these lands like this where you pay life for the mana tend to go in more aggressive decks than control decks, right? Because you don't want to play around with your life total. So I don't think it's going to get played in blue-white, for example. You know, the big one, the most interesting one, I think is the red-green one, because people have been saying for a long time that the mana has been really been holding red-green back from being a good aggro deck in Pioneer. But we have no proof of that right now, and there's not even any inkling that there's something there at this point that fits into this era of Pioneer, like Shane was saying. Yeah, I mean, I can see the red-black one getting played in, like, Rakdos Sack, because mm. I think that it has a lot of need for both black and red on turn one, and there's a lot of ways for it to make up the life loss in that deck. Uh, so I can I think that that might run a full place out of the Sulfurous Springs, I believe, is that one, right? That so, makes sense, yeah. But yeah, like, largely, I think the ones we're getting here is, like, the, the Pathways did a lot of the work for us already. In, re- in replacing the need for the allied pains. And I, I don't know if it's the the access to mana that's keeping something like a Gruul aggro deck down. Uh, you know, I'd be fine with, with more Gruul aggressor decks being extremely good in the format, but that remains to be seen. The, the time may have passed it by and focused on something that's a little bit more synergistic, a little bit more lower to the ground, a little bit more mana efficient than we have in the older sort of historic style builds of Gruul Aggro. Yeah, I mean, there is a Golgari Aggro deck that I think exists in part because that's the best way to have untapped duels early on to like play Lanor Elves and then curve out into three or four drops as quickly as possible. And I think, I mean, you guys are pointing this out, like this is kind of the test on whether that can exist in red-green, but the sheer number of good red three drops that are hard to cast after turn one Lanor Elves makes me feel like this is just the thing we needed to unlock that potential of like Lanor into Rabblemaster, Lanor into Fable, going up the curve a little faster and like ending up at a glory bringer or some other red chonky threat. It's just even having things like Lanor is one, but having like the ability to play a turn one swift spear and then have like a red green aggro deck that can curve out that doesn't necessarily rely on mana dorks. I think is something that we have. Um, what's the, the red green elf that comes out and makes mana? Except uh, red and green. Oh yeah. Um, the is it an emissary? But burning tree emissary. There you go. Burning tree emissary. Yeah, and I feel like that's such a good card that doesn't see play in pioneer, and it could um, to like just dump your hand as quickly as possible and and rush the board and then like top off with an ember cleave. Like I don't know. I I think the tools are there. 
and all we're really missing are are the resources to make it actually work reliably. I I will even add that of the three, this is the one that like is the most exciting to play with and pay attention to. Totally agree with that. This is the one that feels like there might be something new that happens because of it. And we'll see. Get your carpools and forests now. All right. Who had any other cards they want to talk about from the dump? Anybody else have anything that, that they were particularly interested in? Uh, Stan. Yeah. Look, we don't have to talk about these in too much detail because I, I really want to get to the last section. But the phasing of Zelfir, um, I just kind of want to talk about it a little conceptually. Two, blue, blue. It's got read ahead. It's a saga. Chapters one and two. Another target non-land permanent phases out. It can't phase in for as long as you control. This is any target non-land permanent, so it could be your permanents. It could be opponents. And then chapter three is destroy all creatures. For each creature destroyed this way, its controller creates a 2-2 black Phyrexian creature token. The reason this jumps out to me is that it is a board wipe in mono blue that is a powerful thing to have on principle. And the downside of leaving back tutus doesn't seem as bad as like just like answering a bunch of cavalier of thorns and right. a, a bunch of like big monsters that are hard to kill versus just like tutu zombies essentially that really aren't as scary. Blue white and blue black already have really good wraths, but maybe putting this in something like a mono blue deck or even is it control that doesn't have like particularly good wraths and and the best creatures in the format i think sometimes outgrow anger of the gods and this is a solution for that yeah i think it, i think it's interesting what about children the apocalypse like i mean i think children is cool i i i put it in the spoilers it's two black black for a four or five death touch and it says whenever you draw a card gain two whenever opponent draws a card they lose two i mean i feel like this is a card that could pretty easily go in a red black kind of like the mid-range deck and i don't know you know it's it gives reach in a situation where sometimes you can't punch through that additional um you know those those last couple of points of damage and like it just it's going to happen every turn it does two damage every turn your opponent's not going to stop drawing cards and like sometimes you get some life game you're going to gain life and on rate it's pretty good death touch is weird on a card like this because it's big already but like i i don't know the fact that it can just sit there and um and do damn do damage through for nothing is is interesting to me but you know i love all these these uh praetors and then i'm always there none of them get played so we'll see yeah, this one's close to me it's like it's it's definitely standard slash pioneer power level to me i think the real thing is like where does it fit in like this isn't going to replace like you're a couple of Kalidus, you know what i mean and so it's just like what what is this doing I don't know. It's like, is it on game plan? Like, is it something that maybe it's like a sideboard application where it's like, Kalidus won't be good, but this will be good because like I'm sort of locking the game down in other ways that Kalidus yeah. won't necessarily do for me. Like I said, the main thing for this is just getting to get those last couple points of damage the way that you sometimes do that with Chandra on a, a body instead. You know, when you plus Chandra and just do two damage to somebody to close the game out, that happened to me a lot when I was playing Black Red in, uh, in Pioneer, but... Um, I think that's all it's really good for. I think it's good for a couple other things, which is 4-5 Death Touch is really great against opposing old growth trolls. Like, <laughs> what are they going to do there? Um, I also think this is insane against Phoenix, particularly against Ledger Shredder, 
where it's just this just sits there and if they have a ledger shredder out and you're just like casting anything they're just gonna die in a few turns so maybe this is a sideboard card though four mana for a four or five death touch with upside that like pads your life total or punishes your opponent for having a draw step i actually think is just like pushed enough that this is going to be a problem more so than any of the other predators we've seen over the last year or whatever yeah since call time all right i think in the interest of time that's where we're going to stop those are the cards that we're the most excited about now as a group and you know the ones that shane is the most excited to talk badly about uh so just stay tuned you know it's spoiler season we're coming back uh, and we'll we'll have an episode where we focus a lot on some of the other cards uh, soon. Finally, last segment we wanted to talk about. We mentioned it up the top. Frank Karsten, our dream professor of math, uh, who we would love to be our friend, who we dedicated an episode to way back in 2019, who never has never noticed us. We're actively learning Dutch, though we can speak to him in his language as well, though his grasp of English is flawless because all people in, in the Netherlands know English better than we do. Yep. So he recently launched a uh, a new article series on Magic.gg, which is the if you're not familiar with that website, is the Wizards of the Coast competitive Magic Pro Tour kind of website. This is where they've been trying to do the esports thing. Where now that they're not doing the quote unquote esports thing and they're bringing the Pro Tour back, this is where that content is. It's a new article series. Frank is every week is going to write about uh, a metagame of a certain format that's important. It's called Metagame Mentor. I think it's definitely going to be worth checking out. If you don't know who Frank is, he's a, a Hall of Fame magic player. Yeah, I think he's, all right? oh, yeah. he's in the Hall of Fame. Oh, he's, yeah, he's, he's definitely a Hall of Famer. He's gone to a huge amount of pro tours. Um, the, big, the big thing about his content is that it's extremely analytically, mathematically based because he is, in fact, a doctor of some kind of mathematics. I'm not sure exactly which kind. You know, I'm not a doctor myself. So you play one on TV? Yeah, exactly. Quite convincingly? It's the voice. Um, <laughs> but he he always brings a certain spin to this. And much like other times he's done article series where he's come up with some mathematics for it, he has a new and kind of interesting metric that he's using in these articles that I wanted to talk about. And I'll be curious to see how he tweaks it. Um, instead of doing a straight metagame representation percentage plus win rates, what he's doing instead is kind of something that he calls record-weighted metagame share. And what that is, is match wins minus match losses for a given deck. He turns that into a point assignment. Then he totals up the points per archetype, and that's where he gets the percentages for... The, then, he, then he looks at the total points he has among all the archetypes that he's tracking, and then he assigns percentages based on that denominator with the numerator of his net wins basically so does this mean if there's a deck that appeared 50 times in a tournament and a deck that appeared five times in a tournament they might still be represented equally in terms of power level based on their win-loss record yeah i mean it's unlikely with that big of a difference in the in the representation because basically what this is is if he looks at a tournament and a deck goes 3-2 in it, That's a one, that deck gets assigned a single point. If it goes 4-1 in a prelim, that's three points. If it goes 5-0, that's five points, right? So if you look at that versus something like a multi-round like a multi -round tournament like Shane was at, an RCQ that Shane was at earlier, where he was 5-2, and two, 
that's a three point performance in the way that's that Frank is doing the the meta share. And so what he's trying to do is look at performance plus representation. So he wants he's okay with it being skewed by the number of times that it's appearing. So you're saying I have three Frank points already. You do. Okay. Yeah. Three Frank they're bucks. Frank bucks. Frank bucks. Okay, man. Those are yeah. those are worth a lot to me, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. He well, he loves you. That's he's he's recognized you before he recognized me. My favorite quote of this article says this metric can be axiomatically characterized using various appealing properties, and it's an elegant way to combine popularity and performance when round by round results or deck lists with negative records are not available. Indeed, Frank. I actually <laughs> literally have no idea what any of that axiomatically. means. <laughs> but God, yes, but if you're thinking about like a metaphor, so much more often. Absolutely, axiomatically, we should be the axiomatically down. If you're thinking about what he's trying to do here, if you won't, if you know about baseball, you know about like advanced sabermetricsy kind of stuff in baseball. There's a couple of different ways for to do alternate standings. There's one called Pythagorean winning percentage. There's one called base runs. There's another one called third order win percentage. These are all people trying to figure out a more accurate representation than what you get on the first blush of viewing things. So it's it's just an alternate way to think about it. I think this is a really cool thing. It's something that's different. I'm glad that Frank come up with a came up with a piece of like mathematical technology for his articles because it gives a different viewpoint to what he'll be saying. Now, what does it actually say in this Pioneer article? I think that this is um, what's interesting about this is that he describes it as basically this is a winner's meta is what it comes down to. And so if you look at Pioneer through his metrics from tournaments, basically from mid-July until just about now, you get Rakdos mid-range in first place at 15.2%, Mono Green Devotion at 11.8%, Is It Phoenix at 10.7%, you get Rakdos uh, Azorius Control at 9.5%, and Rakdos Sacrifice at 7.0%. I will stop at that top five for a second, because it's not that different from the metagame that you see on goldfish but i do think that the percentage difference between some of yes. these decks is quite different right yeah like the biggest one that caught my eye was mono green like mono green's dropped a bit on goldfish it's like sixth place right and like it's second place ranking on frank frank analysis here and uh, racto sack is eighth place on goldfish being fifth here but like you know all the decks in Frank's top eight, you know, we haven't got to the last ones yet, are the top eight on Goldfish. So it's like people have identified these already. And I'm curious if it's again another chicken or the egg situation where it's like, is have people identified these as the best decks just through iteration? Or are they the best? Are they on Frank's list because people are playing them? Like you can't be on a list if people aren't playing you. So it's just like it's a it's an interesting um conundrum. I find myself in here, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's an interesting way to check the metagame on Goldfish and go, okay, what is higher on Goldfish and what's lower in Frank's articles kind of, and see if that Delta just has to do with almost always that's going to do with overperformance or underperformance on a raw total wins basis, right? Like, I mean, Goldfish isn't perfect, but for example, you know, is it Phoenix or let's say Boros Agro is 7.5% of the meta on goldfish's page it's only 5.7 percent in frank's it's the eighth place deck on frank's list that makes me think that people are bringing boros to tournaments but they're losing a lot is what i kind of take away from that right right so just to to confirm from my own understanding what we're saying here is that goldfish measures popularity 
Frank is measuring success while also factoring in popularity in that equation. That's what he's trying to do. Yeah. Right. And, and Goldfish, yeah. like, it, it doesn't really care about results when it's coming up with its percentages. It's just saying that, like, 16% of Pioneer tournaments in a given period were, or uh, 16% of Pioneer decks in a given period of tournaments were Rakdos mid. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's cool. I think this article is worth, I'm not, we, we don't have to go too much deeper on the meta list. Like we said, it's pretty close to the meta list that you probably have in your mind for Pioneer, but I do think it's an interesting new way to think about it. I'll be curious to see once I have a chance to read it today, what the modern one looks like and what subsequent ones look like as time goes on and we get closer to DreamHack and other things like that. But, do you think though that one action item from this thing, from this article is that the lower a percentage a deck has, the worse it is. Like, is he basically just kind of confirming that based on results, Rakdos mid is the best deck because 15.2% of winning decks are Rakdos mid? It's not, it's, it's not 15.2% of, yes, I guess it is. He is kind of saying that 15.2% of winning decks are probably Rakdos mid is kind of what he thinks this assessment is. This is your winner's meta. Like if you're in the top brackets of a pioneer tournament, this is probably the decks you're going to see in this distribution is what he is suggesting in the article, which is interesting. And we'll have to see how much it changes over time and whether it changes as much as a real meta does or, or not. Um, but, and I'm sure that he'll have, he'll have thinking about it as time goes on to say things like, Hey, you know, I'm noticing that this metric that I've been using overrepresents population. And so what I'm going to do is try to find another way to normalize it. So it waits more on performance or something. So I'll be curious to see if he actually shares development of his thinking as time goes on in this article as well, this article series. The rest of the article though, I think you found some interesting things in too, right, Stan? Oh man, there's the, the master stroke of this article for me is that he included aggregate deck lists to just give you a sense of what the average deck list looks like. And, and you can argue Goldfish does something very similar, but he also provided high level advice for how the deck works and how to play against it. Um, so one example from here is he wrote of, of Racto specifically, when playing against this deck, you should mulligan slightly less aggressively than you otherwise might because you're going to need all the resources that you can muster. Um, and if you do mulligan aggressively in search of certain key cards, then that will often be foiled by things like Thoughtseize and Dreadborb. And he, he, though he didn't do this for every single deck, he did it for a lot of decks. And th the reason I'm just so impressed with that is the data coupled with practical, actionable advice on playing with and against this deck kind of just makes this like the premier crash course resource on a actual metagame snapshot in a way that I don't really see a lot of, if any, other articles doing um, as being this like, What's your one-stop shop for knowing what a format is about if you're going to participate in a tournament with no other exposure to the format previously? And you don't want to listen to the dive down. 
Yeah. 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 And, and the dive down has been about modern for the last few weeks because two thirds of the co-hosts are really into porn dogs. All right. So definitely check out this series going forward. You know, it'll be interesting to see how much, I mean, certainly the stuff that Stan was just talking about that's written to that kind of first time reader audience. I'll be curious to see how much he keeps including stuff like that in the article series as he goes on. Really excited to see what he says about some of the decks in modern. I haven't seen Frank say anything about modern in a long time, so that'll be cool. But um, with that being said, I think it's time for us to uh, move on and uh, close out this episode, right? All right. That wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or reach out in general, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support our show, you can do that over at patreon.com slash the dive down that supports us directly. You can also support us while playing magic with a Manor Trader subscription. Use promo code the dive down 15, all one word, get 10% off your first two months of renting magic online cards. You can also support us by treating yourself to some amazing shaving soaps, body soaps, fragrances, and more over at Barrister and Man using the code the dive down 15 to get 15% off your first order and save some money on paper cards over at Nerd Rage Gaming with code DIVE8 to get 8% off your order there. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and play more Horndog!